Hey everybody, you're very welcome to episode 12 of season 2 of the Asking for a Parent podcast. It's me, Dr. Coleman Octor again, and it's a real pleasure to get to have another chat with you. These are really strange times actually at the moment. We're kind of week one of Easter holidays. The children have kind of just gotten into the swing of school again and another disruption. I think there's a lot of anxiety around actually at the moment around you know whether those numbers will go back up after the break and worrying about perhaps will people start mixing again over Easter and I think there's a general sense of trepidation around at the moment and although we're seeing the vaccine rollout unfold um, there's obviously some high level of disappointment around the, the pace and the manner in which that is done as well so a lot of frustration a lot of difficulty and I think in these kind of times we're being kind of driven into the extremes a lot and again I would urge everyone to try and just keep between that four to seven let's try and keep the middle uh, and not get sucked into maybe some of the narratives around extremism and about getting frustrated about things but to be honest I think a certain amount of that is, is understandable and I think the timing of this week's episode is really good because this week we have a really super guest and this conversation is really interesting because we learn a lot about moderation, about the importance of resilience and choice and, you know, finding our way back from a place that's maybe that darker or maybe that uh, more troublesome side of our lives. And everyone experiences some degree of, I think, losing our way from time to time in our lives. And you know, failure isn't about falling down, it's about refusing to get back up. And I think this story is one of maybe recovery, uh, resilience and moderation. I say that again because I think it's a real theme of this episode and I think it's really timely that we all kind of think about it at the moment. But I won't hold you up any longer, I'll let you listen to this week's episode. But I just want everyone to know that, uh, you know, although these times are, as we've oftentimes said, unprecedented and difficulty is everywhere and we're in a bit of a roller coaster of things i just hope everyone's doing okay out there and um i hope you enjoy this episode anyway my guest on this week for the asking for a parent podcast is an irish politician who has served as an independent senator for the university of dublin constituency since april 2016. she was the president of the trinity college dublin students union from 2015 and 16 and these achievements are on top of becoming a single mother and leaving school at age 15. After returning to education, she studied addiction treatment and helped to develop local services for people with substance misuse issues. In the 25th Shannon, she sits on the civil engagement group, which brings civil society expertise and experiences to the Iraqis. She also introduced the Control Drugs and Harm Reduction Bill and Criminal Justice Bill to the Shannon, which were passed unanimously. She was the vice chair of the Special Joint Directors Committee on the Eighth Amendment. She's also the author of a wonderful memoir called People Like Me. She's still my favorite guest on Lodging with Lucy, and uh, not to mention her cameo experience in uh, Ireland's Fittest Family. But on a personal note, I have followed my guest's career with great interest, and I found her authentic approach to social and particularly mental health issues inspiring. I know that can sound trite at times, but not in the case of describing this week's guest. She walks the walk. Although many people think I'm referring to her life story, I'm not. I'm referring to her ownership over herself, which I find personally so encouraging. I find sometimes I get an impact of image and pretense, and uh, my guest today has always inspired me to kind of, is my go-to and reassuring me when it's okay to be myself. Uh, 
So it's a great pleasure. And when I was doing the wish list for this podcast, she was the first name on the list to introduce you to my guest this week, who has been, you know, a constant in my Twitter life in the last few years uh, uh, and, uh, and has been part of this podcast since the concept phases. It is, of course, Senator Lynn Rowan. Lynn, how are you? Thank you. What an introduction. That's that's lovely. Thank you. <laughs> no, it's very true. I mean, again, I suppose in in jobs, you're kind of thinking, oh, I have to I have to be a certain way or I have to speak a certain way. Or I have to look a certain way. And like, you know, I've, I've gone to lengths kind of covering up tattoos and things like this throughout my life to try and, you know, I suppose, give an image of having it all together. And I just don't get that sense from you. And I, I think you you give us other people a kind of an inspiration to go, actually, it's all right to to be normal, to be okay, to be real. And it's something I think as a parent, we have to be authentic. You know what I mean? It's about being real. And you just come across as, and again, I think probably on talk shows and things like that, you've probably said, oh, what I've said too much in times. <laughs> but uh, it's it's just, I, I find it utterly refreshing. And, uh, and again, I, I think a lot of people do. So thank you for that. So how has 2020, 21 been for you, Lynn? I mean, we're... To list, situate listeners, we're locked down three, we're approaching Easter, it's the year anniversary of our whirlwind of what of lockdowns and, and outbreaks and pandemics and school closures and how has it been for you? Um, it's been a mixed bag, I suppose. Um, I think what I'm trying to appreciate is that I've never got to be at home, really. Um, obviously, I became, I became a mom as well, so young and I never really I, I was always trying to 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 progress my life or go to education or go to work or be productive or, you know, and and trying to um, fight for a kind of a normal life. And I think if a lockdown had a, if this had a came earlier in my life now, I'd say it would have been quite a traumatic experience. But I think at the moment, because even though I still obviously have lots of ups and downs and lots of things going on in my life from my mental capacity and my ability for tolerance of what's going on in the world is so much bigger now in terms of my own ability to be okay. So I think the lockdown has had lots of different challenges, but ultimately I have felt okay. My daughter, my eldest daughter is in her third year in Trinity. So she's kind of been doing her, her college from home, which is actually, that's been quite positive because she, she is on the spectrum and the bus journey used to cause a, a, an awful lot of turmoil for her going into Trinity. And now, now she obviously she is she is starting to itch to go back to see friends. If, if only the lockdown could remove the the, the bus. If, oh, do you know what? If we could keep lockdown buses the way only so many people are allowed on them. That is like the biggest autism friendly bus system that exists now, now the way it is. So if we can keep a couple of them going, uh, Jordan's journey in and out of college would be amazing. Uh, but she's been really great doing her college work. And then the youngest girl is obviously she's just turned 14. So school at home has had its challenges in, in terms of motivation, in terms of being able to engage online. But the school, the school has been great and she's she's done her best. So I suppose the way I've got through the last year in terms of that setting is I've tried not to force Jaylin, the youngest girl, too much or, you know, put too much pressure on her around school. And it's kind of just, well, let's just do what you can. And, you know, and if that's the bare minimum some days, that's the bare minimum. And we just, yeah, so that's how I've survived, I suppose. 
So three ladies in the one house uh, <laughs> and and lockdown and whatnot and working from home. And obviously, I'm guessing you're doing loads of your stuff remotely as well. How's the cabin fever been? It's not been too bad. I've been walking and running around. Uh, I live on the foot of the mountain, so I've never appreciated so now I've changed. So now when people ask me where I live, I don't even say Tala. I say, oh, the foot of the mountain. Because <laughs> I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm so engaged with my surroundings over the pandemic that now I feel like I actually live on the foot of the mountain. How did I grow up in this estate and not utilize this space more? And the lockdown has kind of allowed this appreciation develop of what, because when I look out my bedroom window, it's the hills. And I can't believe I've, I'm in the same bedroom since I'm a kid. Like I've been living here my entire life and I've never looked out the window and went, ah, oh, there's the hills. It's like they didn't, I couldn't even, I couldn't even see them, you know? And uh, so the cabin fever has been somewhat helped by me just going up to the bottom of the mountain and walking around the reservoir and things like that. And that, that's been helpful. And I do get to go into work when I'm in the chamber. So that allows me to leave, leave Tala. And I'm also um, working, I'm also helping Safety Net out since the first lockdown, who are a health equity, they, they provide health care to those who most need it, like the homeless community, migrant, direct provision, traveller community, stuff like that. So they've been doing COVID testing as well as all the other work they do. So I've been doing a bit of work with them, maybe three or four times a month, I go in and work for them just to give their own staff some time off. So I might do the administration and stuff. So that allows me to go even over to the north side you know, cross so, the river, cross the river. So sometimes I sometimes what I've done is I've only driven halfway to work and I park the car up and I walk to the back of the Matter Hospital to Eccles Street to do that. So I've been I've been I've been resourceful in trying to uh, take in as, 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 as wide a space as possible when I can. That's gas because I know those mountains that you're talking about because I grew up on the top of them. Uh, I'm from Britis, which is kind of just... Where we used to go riding our horses on the Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when you go past the embankment, you're kind of into the where we where we are. So uh, yeah, so we used to look down and go, oh, look, there's the sound. That's where we all need to be. <laughs> and yeah, you're looking up at the mountains, how things change. So, so you've gotten through the cabin fever, kind of been able to break it up a little bit. And what we always say around this is, is obviously the parenting journey. We've tried to interview people who've had probably less typical parenting journeys. So we've had uh, Scott Castanrenny, who's a same-sex parent. We had Tom Clonan, who's a, a parent of a child with additional needs. And, and uh, my own sister, who's kind of a single parent with two children with autism, was on uh, the series as well. For your experience, obviously, you were a single mom, uh, very young when you had your children and, and your first child. What was the template that you had growing up from your own experience of being parented? And what bits of that did you say, OK, I'm going to take this bit with me or maybe I'll do that one a little bit differently? Yeah, I suppose I had, I think, considering I was such like a wild child, my parenting template allowed me something more normal to actually sit into. So my parents were quite average, normal, hardworking, you know, out working since they left school at 12 or 13, like in sewn factories. And they got up to work, went to work every morning. You never heard a complaint about it. It was so I had a really solid template to set into, which was probably obviously is such a positive thing when you're 15 and you're becoming a mother and 
you know, there was so much turmoil in my life at that stage that I always had something more safe to slot into. Even if my own headspace wasn't safe, there was at least a safe scaffolding in my home structure. Hence why I've probably never left. I'm still here, like, you know, at 36 years of age and still still living with mommy. So it was it was safe. My home was safe. So I took a lot from my mom. Like my dad was all about moderation. So he, uh, you know, drink in moderation never smoke so we used to always set these incentives for us like if you get to 18 without smoking I'll give you a thousand uh, pound and he'd get like he'd get a loan for the credit union to meet these like milestones so like you're total bribery but like incentives positive incentives of cash when you're young is always good so obviously I failed I was smoking giants at 12 do you know what I mean so he used to what I loved about my dad is he would change the goal so it was never now that's it you're done you didn't meet it you won't be getting your thousand pound you know uh, he would say okay okay uh, and then after he got over the shock of his daughter smoking or doing whatever he would re- he would he would move the goalposts for you to make it more achievable so we'd say okay listen this is where we're at Um, if you stop smoking by whatever you know and if you're not smoking when you're 18 I'll give you the thousand pound so he never said stop smoking today. Like it's like he had no formal education. He had no anything, but he just had an internal ability to be able to just judge a situation very, very well. And so he he made it more achievable for me. So he never cut me off. And I think and same with Grand National. Like, I mean, you could never put on more than like 50p each way. You know, if you saw you going out like it like now, come on. That's not enjoying. You know? So everything he applied it to everything. Uh, chocolate, you know. All right, have a Mars bar now twice a week, honestly, you know, like, so yeah, he, he just had, but he never kind of, he never went on about them things. He just lived those things and he would just mention to you how good it is to, you know, if you were putting on a bet or if you were, you were drinking and you drank too much, he would never, uh, it was never lecturing or it was never anything. He just, he led very much by example in this house, you know, and that was just quite powerful for me, I think. Um, I was never judged then when I didn't. So it wasn't that he had an expectation. And if you didn't meet that expectation, you were less than, you know, he just worked with you within those set of expectations. Like he just worked within those, within a particular remit for you to always be able to come back again and try again and be again and you were never judged. You were never like thrown out gone. Or you were never like, I mean, you were grounded every now and again, but like, I mean, that's pretty normal. But yeah, so I think, I think that has like, that does impact on my parenting and it probably impacts as well then on the wider set of my parenting in that being a single mother and the kids having their own family identities on, on their father's sides. And I've always tried to make sure there's always space and room for that to grow and those identities to be part of their lives and those relationships and just trying to yeah I think I would have got that from my dad just this real sense of just being a reasonable there's something he 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 seems kind of organically or by accident to have been ahead of his time do you know what I mean like we're always saying like we need to go with less rules and more values you know you need to to show someone by what you're doing what they need to do and always remember that failing isn't falling down. It's about refusing to get back up. And he had all of that, it sounds like. Do you know what I mean? And Lynn, can I ask you, I, I hope you don't mind me asking this question, but you know, when you see the wild child and you know, from the position of kind of middle-class privilege, we would always say, I blame the parents or there's something along the lines of 
that, that there's something there. You're clearly not describing that dynamic. No, not at all. And I think that's why I always get infuriated, you know, when people say, where were her parents or where are his parents? And it really ignites something in me because most of my friends that have had particular experiences have had very supportive parents and parents that have tried to stand by them, have tried to create a good environment. But like if you're a, if you're a family that's a very small amount of power to have in a whole environment that's experiencing trauma and poverty. So like, it's like saying that your individual responsibility is so much more powerful than a whole set of systematic circumstances and policies and, you know, um, violence, like as if, you know, so that's, it's, it's a pretty hard battle to face. So to blame the parents allows us to move the responsibility away from, you know, the makeup of our society or the chances that we have. And I think some people, when they say that stuff is like, like, you'd wonder, like, what, like, do they have children? Do they, like, it's, I've always find it very hard how they come to that conclusion. Like, do you know what I mean? That, like, everything is somehow, you know, a parent, if a parent had had more input. Yeah, so it does infuriate me. And I don't know whether it's a lack of understanding of, people's lives or whether it's just that judgy thing you know, oh, you know well, it's, it's kind of that thing oh if she was mine yeah. uh, she wouldn't get away with that you know that sort of I think that approach is kind of ingrained in us and I will always say I don't think parents are always part of the problem but I do think they're always part of the solution do you oh, know yeah. what I mean in terms yeah. of that but in, in and you're exactly right you've got a peer group you've got a society you've got a way in which people view that do you know what I mean from the point of view of your your address your accent your whatever and And also society somehow like especially if we're looking at communities that do say experience um a lot of situations that most like the family shouldn't or people shouldn't um there's this real unwillingness to realize that parents are also a product of their surroundings and their access and their understanding and you can't separate parents from their own history you know, so you don't become a parent and all of a sudden you shed all your um, poverty that you experience or lack of education that you experience or lack of employment that you experience. And somehow now you are a beacon of light and you know how to ferry your child through the system, navigate them into college, navigate them into work and teach them all these values that you yourself didn't have access to. So at what point did that parent all of a sudden become something else other than who they were before they were a parent? You know, so people are always only trying to do the best they can within the constraints that they exist in. You know, so for me, when people say that, I'm like, stop separating parents from their own history. They also Mm. have their own history and they've also had their own parenting experience when they were growing up or their lack of employment or their lack of education. So that still exists. And I think that's probably what I was kind of asking around your own experience of your mum and dad and how that translates into you with it in terms of your two daughters now but also i think there's a, a kind of given that you know as we mature we get more sensible do you know what i mean and we kind of you know that and i would see all the things that your dad did as an investment that maybe wasn't paying off in the teenage years or in the 20s but then it started to pay off and it's paying off now do you know what i mean in terms of the value system that you have and oftentimes we don't see the outcome of the investment in the moment it's 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 down the line that it'll it'll happen but yeah, when you're sorry got to see the investment <laughs> oh mm. but yeah. again that <laughs> the, the fact that you remember that investment yeah. it lives on in you in that way uh, but 
in when you're in a teenage situation where you're now thrust into being a parent, I mean, how do you like? I don't imagine you just shed your wildness all of a sudden and you become uber sensible overnight. How was that? At this, I would be lying if I said it was difficult because at the time, whatever frame of mind I was in, I was just moving forward with the situation. Um, I think my, I don't know whether everyone does this, but I definitely acknowledged the difficulties and hardships in a very retrospective way. So I think whatever way I utilized myself in the moment, it was with a lack of acknowledgement of how difficult things are, because I think if I allowed that in, I'm not sure I would have been able to cope with the realities of how difficult things are or could be. So I think there's a coping mechanism there, you know, and not one of denial or not one of ignorance or not one of refusing to see the difficulties, but one of survival. And I think a lot of people in 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 my community are in a, a position of survival where to allow the realities in sometimes is would actually be at a detriment to our ability to actually get up every day and do everything. So we have to wear all those armors and all those masks just to keep going. So I think I would have utilized myself in that way at that time. Looking back, I can see it was it was like, of course, it was it was difficult. I was fighting against this young person that did want to go out with her friends or continue to take drugs or, you know, but there was also a huge amount of sensibilities happening in parallel to the madness, because I think you can be reasonable and wild sometimes all in the one all like we're not we're not one or the other. And I think sometimes the two things can exist together in, in a particular way. So say like. Um, when I got pregnant, I stopped smoking and I stopped drinking. Where did I get that from? Where did I get that sensibility from at 15? And the, 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 the strength and the will to do that. My mom gave up smokes before she got pregnant on my on my older brother and she never smoked again. And she spoke about the importance of, of you know, not smoking and drinking and just kind of trying to maintain a healthy lifestyle so that you have a... a, a I suppose, a healthier journey through pregnancy and stuff like that. But they pass their messages on, not in any sort of like teaching you a lesson kind of way, but just I knew for some reason I knew that that's what I should do because that's what my mother did. And that's what her sisters did, you know. And so for me, that's a very sensible thing, I think, for a, for a 15 year old to be able to take on board who was literally chaotically using drugs. Like I was able to 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 be two things at once at every moment of my life. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm. And yeah, so I mean, I'm sure it was difficult. I'm sure it was more difficult for my parents than it was for me because they're at a different level of maturity of going, what the hell is going on? Like we just need to mind her. And and like my mom and dad never, they they just rode in behind me. Like my children have definitely had like several parents really I, I I it was never my it was never my sole responsibility like so like with my mom went for the shopping on a Thursday uh, for the food shop Jordan was always included in that food shop you know so there was never this like she, my children just became part of the family unit in a collective sense rather than I'm solely responsible of this sense, you know, and obviously like that just that continued to emerge. Like, I mean, it's still the same now. Like Jaylin is 14. She's a rake of allergies and Jordan's a vegetarian. So I still don't go and do the food shop. Like my mom still does the food shop, you know. So like that the structure just continued in that way, you know. And, and in terms of your parents reaction, I mean, obviously, 
I'm trying to work out. You said 36. So we're talking 90s. Or, no, we're not. We're talking. I would have got pregnant in 1999 and had her in 2000. So that time we still haven't kind of well it's it's recent history but it's still historical like was there I'm, I'm guessing there was a bit of outrage at the start and then they rode in and said right let's let's do this in terms of your mum's was she involved or sorry your mum was she involved in the the early parenting piece like would she have been always there for you if you needed that kind of yeah. a dig out because you were so young I'm guessing Yes, um, but she. I think even if I wasn't young, she'd do it now as well. Like I think um, she's still doing mom, it. <laughs> still doing it. My mom. My mom works full time, and she goes to gym in the evening and stuff. So it's not that she was available twenty four seven because, like, she wasn't a stay at home mom. She so she was very resourceful, I suppose, with her time and her. My mom is amazing with practical, uh, practical practicalities of support. Do you know what I mean? So you might not sit down and have some big, like, emotional kind of delving into something with my mom my mom is practical and it's brilliant you know so and I think that's what's good about my house we recognize our strengths and we allow everybody work from their strengths within the family instead of creating an expectation because you know some people can go oh I can't even talk to my mom like I've tried to talk to her about this breakup and da 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 I don't do that so what my mom does is she'll come home and she'll say um she'll know something has happened and she'll say, listen, you go on out for a jog there. Now I'll get the dinner. Like, so it's like, we recognize what our strengths are and we allow that build the family unit in, a, in, in, in the best way that we can. And my mom has just always been there and always done that. And, you know, I never really went back out to like running around the streets all day. Like when I, when I had her, but there was weekends when, as I got older that I wanted to say, go to a nightclub and do this. But then my dad got sick as well. So I spent a lot of time then at home, you know helping with my dad and yeah so I don't know if that really answers the question I can't even remember now what the question was so it was kind of what you're you're answering it perfectly because it was looking like this kind of team parenting piece you know where you step in when I'm struggling and I'll step in and I'll give you a break when I think you need it and you know it was parented like rather than kind of handing over a child and saying here you go it was kind of a it was like that village to raise a child thing. Um, can I ask you, had you, you're not an only child, so you have siblings. Like, were they all living at home at the same time as well? Yeah, I've, I've just won. I've just my brother. So, um, yeah, he's two years older and he was living at home as well. Yeah. So, he, so did, he, he had a new baby in the house as well. New baby in the house as well. He was only 17. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then, you know, Lynn, uh, the, the idea, I, I don't know whether you like the tag of the kind of the girl done good. I mean, you end up in Trinity and Senator and all these fantastic things that have happened since. What, what's your view on that? Is that? Does that bother you or not? Well, I, or? I have two real views on it. Um, so my first view is that I allowed them labels and I embraced those labels as they start hitting the newspapers, but not because girl done good, but because people will, I, whether we like labels or not, people will identify with a particular label. So other young mothers might say, okay, that's grand. So like, you know, maybe I could do that little course that I wanted to in the community or maybe, you know, stuff like that. Or, you know, so I allowed the label stick so that people could identify with me that needed to identify with me. Like, that's why I've been so open, say, about drug use or about all the different struggles that I've had or even parenting while struggling, like, with my own mental health and just trying to deal with my own trauma. And I've tried to be open with them so that people can identify with those parts of me. But 
I allowed that happen, but then I also had to be very aware that girl done good or you know single mother becomes senator like it's 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 a stretch right so you can't you can't not fill in the gaps and one of the main reasons I wrote the book was so that people could see the journey I took to get to those points and the struggles and there wasn't something super fantastic about me that made me different to all the other single mothers do you know what I mean I wanted to show that it was it was difficult that um I still struggle that I have you know I, I also had two very supportive parents. I also had kids that could go and visit their dad's family on the weekend for me to get some time to do like college work or, you know, so I had a, I had a support system that not everyone has. So I wanted very to be very clear to know that if you want to go to college or if you've had similar experiences to me, that it's not your fault or there's not something wrong with you if you haven't been able to achieve that. And that's why I wrote the book, because I wanted to show the different things that had to be in place for me to achieve that. So on Kassan, going there when I was 16 to do two years education there, they had a crash. Would I have been able to get that in that door if they didn't have a crash for me to bring Jalen Jordan? No, I wouldn't. So what would happen to me then? So that's the first part is like support and being able to educate someone within their own community, but with the support of childcare. So that was such a big thing for me to point out going, well, this allowed me. So it wasn't just that I was super fantastic or really intelligent or really, you know, full of all these skills that I could just go and do all these things that actually there was state supports, Mm. family supports. And then I also had mentors that very much took a chance on me and, you know, saw something in me and believed in me and gave me opportunities. So for me, I'm okay with the labels, but only if people continue to place the labels in the context of how I lived. To understand that if we give people the right supports, well, then that people can flourish. And I think there is something in that. I'm listening to that. I'm saying, you know, if someone had similar circumstances where they had good supportive parents, but they were, it's still the mentorship and everything else. It still takes the individual to make the decisions, doesn't it? In terms of like, there's, you can't coach somebody to be an elite sports person they have to have it in themselves and it's not that they do in a half six on a tuesday night they do it all the time you know what i mean so there's a drive or something in them and i'm not saying that people who don't end up in the senate don't have drive but from the point of view of what who believed in that drive who were the people who went no you've got something here go for it or make that decision or make that choice I suppose to come back again i suppose i could get really philosophical on choice and decision and 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 where free will is an illusion within that and what are the external factors that fed into me being able to appear to have drive to take on these situations um so i'm going to try and refrain from going too philosophical on, on free will um, uh, but and say that <clears throat> i think i think we need to also look at what i see as success in those situations so um a woman say that does a course locally in bookkeeping like so she has the same drive as I have we've just ended up in different spaces right or the woman or the man who does a course and never goes to work right we don't see their successes but within their house they might be able to help the child with homework or to be able to um know how important it is to you know make sure you know your kids are in bed at a certain time so that they get up for school and some of these things will go invisible forever and I think they are just as driven and and as successful as I am 
but we just choose where we place that drive and success in terms of what we want to do. Sometimes I look at women who went through like on Kassan and um, they went back to their houses. They never became like their, their, their contribution to education, to the education in their life never became like an economic output. But what it did is within their home, they developed the confidence maybe to be able to ask more questions at parent teacher meetings so that they could better support the child or to advocate for their sick husband or their sick father in a doctor's surgery. You know, when the doctor is telling you about something, you don't understand it. So there's all these different ways that education and drive and success manifests itself. And it's not always in the societal sense. Sometimes it's in the it's in the sense of the home and Mm. you may never see the output of that. But the output will happen in terms of, you know, how calm the household is or, you know, women often say that they engage in education. And then the only thing they ever did and was probably the most important, they left the domestic violence situation after. Mm. But they still remained housewives and stayed at home and didn't go on to further progress their education or or a career. But they took themselves out of a very toxic situation. So I think my drive just looks different than those types of drive. But I think that that stuff is happening every day. It just is not in the newspaper or it's not on a podcast. Do you know what I mean? And the, the, I'm going to get onto the parenting now question, but I, the one question I did always want to ask you was because I can just imagine being in Trinity and you know the there's a lot, bit of notion thickness going around there and all that sort of stuff, you know, and and to put your name forward for student union president, that's that <laughs> I, I I I'd love to know what when you said, okay, I'm going to sign that, I'm going to put that ballot in, or I'm going to do it, or was there a moment or? So in the year before that, I was the student parents officer, which was the very first time that that position ever existed. So that's how I became involved, I suppose, with the students union was that I put myself forward for that. And I done a huge amount of work in that year. And, you know, I developed lots of different summer camps and midterm camps for kids and, you know, negotiating with, with lecturers around making their their lectures that are on in the evening accessible online instead of parents having to hang around at seven in the evening. So I'd kind of already got involved with the students union through through that piece. So when it was suggested to me to run for the presidency, it was actually the president of the students union that was president of students union while I was parenting officer, Donald McLacken-Bourne. And he was, you know, your typical SU president in the sense that, you know, came through private school, very well educated. And was he, but what he had, he, do you know what he had? He had this ability, this social consciousness that didn't come from lived experience, but came from just a sense of compassion and understanding in himself that when it's like you, you would tell him something and he would take, he would process it and think about it. And his ability to place, you know, your experience in the wider context. He just had, for a young man, like he would have been only like 19 or 20, I think, like, and I was like, I think it was probably my first experience of really learning from like a young, a much younger male, you know, and he just kind of blew me away. And he just kept pointing out where my skill set in addiction or my skill set in community work was totally transferable to what a college would need in a president where I wouldn't have made those correlations at all. So he was planting the seed. He was very much tipping away at my mindset. And then it was like, you should run for the presidency. And then I don't know whether it was a mixture of 
taken on a challenge. Um, I, I've always been quite competitive. Um, I've been involved with sport since I'm very young, and I suppose it has conditioned me somewhat to, to competition. Um, I like to win, and I'm still a good loser, actually. So I, I really like to win, really, really like to win. And you would think that that would mean then I'm a terrible loser. But my dad always, my dad was a referee and he played League of Ireland football. He played for Bray Wanderers and he played for Sligo Rovers. And he, he, I think he played a stint with St. Pat's and like he, he, so my dad was a, and he boxed with the army and stuff. And he never trying to punch outside of the ring. Like, you know, like that was it. Like, no, no, you do not take your skill outside of where it's supposed to be and stuff. So his, he, I had a competitiveness, but with his sportsmanship. And I think somehow that also leaked into me actually running for the presidency because I was like, okay, this, like, this is another competition. So somebody's basically saying you should be president and you should run. And if you don't, what, what are you afraid of? Like, why wouldn't you put yourself into the race? And I think that that's probably what ultimately got me into the race in the end. And I do remember the moment that I decided, yeah, I was going to run. And then my anxiety levels drop. So I get really anxious and worked up in the space of the unknown where I haven't made a decision. And I operate really well then in when a decision is made, even if what faces me is really difficult. Mm. So, you know, I, I operate very well in, in reality and knowing, OK, this is what I'm going to do. Now, let's just charge ahead. It's brilliant. I mean, again, I just think it's so important to and I work with young people all the time and reminding someone of their skill set, reminding them of their ability like so much focus is what you can't do or where your limitations are, you know, and there's people who go through their lives just focusing on, you know, if I, I would always say there's two types of jigsaw makers. There's the people who are going, geez, I'm getting on grand here. And then there's others who look at what's left in the box and go, I'll never be able to get this done. Do you know what I mean? But the, the, you, we need it. We need to be pointed out that this would work and we need to be asked the question, why not? I just think that's a really important question to ask. And it's interesting you talk about the, the, the I forgot the gentleman who was, the young lad who was Donald. helping you. Donald. Donald. I, was, I remember talking to Peter McVerry uh, and Peter was a Clongo's, you know, son of a doctor, from a very privileged background, but had just a social conscience uh, that wasn't from a lived experience. And in some respects, that's quite admirable too, you know what I mean, in terms of to be able to relate when you haven't had that experience. So we better get on about this. <laughs> I'm getting lost in, in, in my fandom here at the moment. But um, So then you become a parent of two girls and uh, my guess is you're kind of in your 20s around that. And what was the challenges? What was, the, the, what was, what was parenting like for you? I think parenting when they were young was was pretty okay when I could control them Um, I like I said I like working in, with uncertainties so when my kids could operate under my authoritarianship of do this we're going here at this time be ready at that time that that worked fine when they reached a state so so you can imagine right someone who who talks about autonomy consent negotiation and I'm like I agree with all them things until it's yours <laughs> you know and so I'm teaching them to to stand up for themselves to negotiate to to um challenge the teacher to you know don't and then I'm going but not in here right <laughs> and I really realized that that's what I was doing when my daughter youngest daughter my eldest daughter hit like you know the age where she then was taking the skills that she had developed as a very powerful young woman and going 
hang on a minute like <laughs> <we're see." laughs> so like I found the teenage years then it was something I really needed really needed to go inwards and look at myself and what I'm doing and let go of control and uh, so that was a real struggle um, it was a real struggle I had to really address my own stuff when they turned like so when Jordan turned 12 13 there was a slight triggering of my stuff that I experienced at 12 or 13 so I became really like a tyrant you know as if she was me um, which is unfair so I was treating her and trying to control her as if she was me mm. and I was now 12 again and I was looking at me and that, so that was unfair. So um, I had to work through all of that and, you know, really listen and learn from what my kids were feeding back to me, you know, like, ma'am, that's not actually fair what you're saying there, or you shouldn't be, sh- you know, shouting at me to do that when you taught me, blah, blah, blah. So they were really picking apart the, 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 the conflictions within what I'm saying and what I'm doing. Mm. Um, and that was a really big learning core for me that I've been on, since like Jordan is 21 this year and I'm constantly learning in that space and then Jay Lynn comes along and she's only 14 now but she might as well have been 14 at nine so she has been always very forceful she's quite blunt in our communication which me and Jordan are much more about the gray and the talking around and uh, and Jay Lynn is like no like like okay you know or she's the one that sends you back a thumbs up in a message where you're having anxiety going (laughs) (laughs) all she sent me was a thumbs up like what's going on is she is she not (laughs) so like she came along and her 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 kind of all her personality and I suppose she owes a lot to our older sister who took the brunt of the controlling mother helped me kind of work on my parenting skills in that sense and now Jordana's looking going fucking Jalen's grand like <laughs> <laughs> ma doesn't even shout at Jalen doesn't ground Jalen you know lets Jalen go around the house saying whatever the hell she wants and I, I said that's thanks to you you taught me and showed me the way on how to be a better parent to a teenager you know so yeah so the, the early the early years I thought were easy because I could control them and I realized now that that's because they had to do and say what I said do and say but that's not the case here now. It's a very, it's a free for all house now. And my poor ma's going, <laughs> what's going on here? Like, you know, so my kids are very outspoken. You know, we basically have to have a committee meeting every week. You know, like she said that and actually I don't agree with that and she shouldn't have done this. And, you know, and it's, and we talk it all out and my ma's just like, I just want to watch <laughs> Mindless with his <laughs> Do we have to? fucking talk about all of this all of the time so yeah enough uh, with the feelings so uh yeah so now it is it's great and it's tiring and emotional and but it's good can i ask you about that because that 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 realization of our tendency or potential to vicariously see ourselves through our children and kind of Almost in, a, in an overly harsh way, we can go, you're not going to make the same mistakes that I did, or, you know, you're going to be different, or uh, I see a bit of me in you. Um, that's Did that happen organically, or would that have been, would you have been held to point that out, or how did that work? Like, with your dad hitting certain ages, it happened without me knowing, so it was like a trauma response to sit, of, of an age or a girl at a particular age, and 
you know, um, I had obviously a lot of negative experiences um, in terms of being sexually active so young and stuff that came up. And, you know, I really imposed like, you know, a message that I'd never impose on my daughters around like you know that she needed to protect herself she what she needed to do rather than you know teaching her the real message around consent and understanding the stuff that I understand now you know um so some of that stuff happened as a trauma response I wasn't taught about I'd even think if someone pointed it out to me I was stuck on a trauma point in history that actually you know I I worked it out in in in, in a therapeutic sense and I also worked it out in the sense that I felt if I didn't address, if I didn't address my own trauma that was being triggered through parenting, then there was the potential for me to push my daughter away. And I think the fear of that also propelled me into trying to do that work on myself um, to make sure that I didn't do that, that I didn't push her away so that she just didn't want to be around me, you know, because I was always doing the complete opposite in the sense of what my dad would do. Actually, creating too high of an expectation, or you know, and um, luckily, I was I had the skill set ultimately to be able to address those things in me, you know. So, yeah, those teenage years were hard, but I think, but I think, like we were saying earlier about my dad's investment, my investment, and my kids' investment into acknowledging these things as they were coming up and working through them as a family is paying its dividends now in how we are growing as her as a young woman and and my 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 youngest daughter as a teenager, you know, and, you know, J- Jordan jokes and I joke about her being the first pancake, you know, and kind of, you know, the second, the second one then looks looks much nicer, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and, and or, you know, me practicing, you know, practicing on the first one and, 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 and getting it better on the second one, which sounds awful for, for, for my eldest daughter, really. Um, but we do have, an, we do, like I said earlier, it's like, you know, when we're not, we're, we're not all one thing or our behaviors are not all one way. So there was great things I did in my parenting while I was still also getting things wrong. So it's like, mm. you're not one you're not one or the other like um so even though my messaging was often wrong around trying to control her or what she did or what she said or where she went and we also had these other amazing experiences where um you know I met like I I made sure like she like so she was a boxer she was a Leinster champ she was a Dublin champ she was a dancer you know we spent every weekend at dance competitions I went to Blackpool we traveled Africa together we traveled Mexico we were following like David Attenborough's route to see like saltwater crocodiles or see you know you know will we see great migration so we had all these beautiful things so again it was that it was that was probably down to me again it's like who am I and what am I it's like there's these constantly two two conflicting things happening at once which I'm sure is confusing for a child so you have this mother that's been great in all these ways and then this other mother that completely contradicts that and looks nothing like that and maybe that's also down to like maybe that doesn't become as apparent when you're parenting in the traditional household because people balance out their you know you're the person that gives the punishment and the other person is the good cop bad cop so like I'm I was everything Mm. in the one sentence you know what I mean which was I'd say tiring for a lot of us you know like oh who is she today like you know is she Mm. is she fun mad that's going to plan a trip to wherever like she came home from school one day and asked about um she wanted to study Venice she wanted to do a project on Venice when she was in primary school and I didn't know anything about Venice so I was saved up and I used to get my mom and dad to like buy us 
has a like say our Christmas present to buy us a, a Ryanair flight somewhere and um, so we went to Venice and I, she was an amazing artist and still is an amazing artist which she got from her dad like her dad taught her how to hold a pencil before she could do anything else in her life and she we went to Venice and because in that moment I was like I don't really know anything about Venice and I'm not one of those parents that has been well traveled around the world to be able to just automatically know this. I never finished school. So I don't know the question she's asking me. And I wanted to create those experiences for her so that she, so we went to Venice and we brought my youngest daughter as well, who would have been only one in the pram. And we done lots of trips like that. That was me trying to build social and cultural capital for her so that she had those experiences. And I wouldn't have even had the term social and cultural capital then. I only look back and know now that that's what I was doing. So you just you had that parent and then you also had this parent that was triggered by trauma and did have, you know, angry bursts or, you know, you know, be overbearing or overreaching into kind of controlling their mindsets and stuff, you know. But thankfully, that has all kind of developed and I've developed it's it's funny as you talk just listening about you know it's there's nothing more poignant than when your child points out your hypocrisy do you know what I mean (laughs) and you kind of go oh shit but I think I'm just thinking of as a single parent when you are mom and dad that has to be much more conflicting because when you're good and bad cop together do you know what I mean there's there's a moment ideally those roles should be shared out so I get my chance to be you know saving the kids from mom and mom gets to save them from me and and it should it, it's it, it kind of would help with ambivalence but I, I would imagine do you know the way when somebody scolds a child for something they've done or they're on punishment and the, the other parents go I just want to go over and hug them now because you know and I don't want to undo what they've just done but I, I they need someone to hug at the moment when you have to be both do you know what I mean? How do you even, like that's 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 a serious gear change from being the poem, you know, because like maybe I, I, I'd probably have to think about this further, but it almost appears like a manipulation then because mm. you're going, I'm going to shout at you, but now you're crying and I've told you you're not allowed to do this or you shouldn't have been over that at the park or whatever and you're losing your temper and now they're crying and for you to hug them straight away. Mm. that's very confusing like it's Mm. a little bit like emotional manipulation I'm going to make you cry and now I'm going to make you feel better and you're Mm. going to forget that I just made you cry and you're going to accept my comfort Mm. and that's like that has its own issues I'd imagine if you were to go into the psychology of it I I think it does but I think the 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 hardest thing to tolerate is grey and I just I I think time is making a fool of us here but I I think from the point of view of when you said about your dad and you said he's moderation, right? And my parenting key is four to seven. Do you know what I mean? Avoid one, two, three, and eight, nine, ten. That's where people run into trouble. Anyone who comes to see me, Lynn, they're generally one, two, three, or eight, nine, ten. Whether it's alcohol, study, uh, socializing, anxiety, whatever. Too much or too little. And it's all about gray, actually. It's all about tolerating gray. You know, that I am both. I am good, I am bad. And I think there's kind of two questions we ask ourselves is, you know, do you love me and am I good and bad? And they're really core questions that we ask a lot of the world all the time. And there's no answer to them because I can love you and not love you at the same time. And you can be good and bad at the same time. And 
and just listening for you, and this is the first time we've talked, I think that's the authenticity is about not trying to be one or other, but actually being both and yeah. comfortable in the both. And it, comfort in the discomfort of it. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's almost the key. But and I, I'll just ask you one question. Is there something that the parenting journey that, that you ponder or question or is there anything about that that you could think of asking me about or something that um, has ever kind of troubled you or you've wondered if there's another way of looking at something? I suppose I look at my mom who obviously I still live with and, and she laughs when I say this because I do be going, does this ever end? Like, do I ever get to just go off now and just be me as an individual? Uh, and I suppose that is my question. So it's not saying that I want to ever just abandon my kids, but I'm like, I don't know what it is to be an individual because I went from being a child to a mother. So I've never been an adult with an individual identity. And I suppose my question would be is that, on that parenting journey at any stage, does that separation happen enough for me to ever experience what it would be like to be an individual adult independent of anything else? Is that a question? It is. I think it's a brilliant question. And it's um, the important part is enough because I don't think complete separation is possible nor desirable from that point of view. But th this is something I actually wrote my, my, my article in the examiner. This caused a bit of consternation because I said that the role of parenting, the object of it was to be made redundant. When yeah. you're no longer needed, you've done your job well. Right. And that's, I still believe in that. Now that's obviously different with someone who's a parent of a child with special needs or somebody who has, you know, needs that will go on past that. But in the general run of things, and it's something somebody said to me about psychotherapy is that your role is to be redundant. It's a really unusual job that you're trying to do yourself out of a job. And you want to be able to give your child enough to be able to manage that will allow you the space to carve out your own identity. But you never stop being mom because it's who you are, but it maybe stops defining you. Do you know what I mean? And there are, there's a space for something else to take place. And I think sometimes we can struggle with the, the, the complexity of wanting our own space, but also wanting to be involved. And, you know, dancing that line of, it's almost like I want to have full control of you, but I also want you to be independent. And, you know, we're asking something impossible of somebody else. And we ask that question of ourselves as well. So for me, it's about tolerating that your child doesn't need you is almost harder. Do you know what I mean? And it's come up time and time again around the stepping back. You know, uh, some people feeling guilty about stepping back and feeling unsure about it. Feel, some people feeling that they can't and they want to. And, you know, it's it, this pandemic has been really interesting because I think we've never been more lonely for the outside world, but we've never craved alone time as much. Do you know what I mean? Because of the nature of the bubble, this real weird thing about, uh, I remember just thinking that going to Tesco's is just such a lovely break. You know, it's just <laughs> down the road. And uh, yet I, I, I would give anything to see my friends and, meet up for a night out or whatever the case be. So it's that contradiction. But I think it's enough. Our, our idea of enough will oftentimes be determined by ourselves and our children, not by one. So 
I don't decide how much I give you is enough for you. And you don't decide how much you want is enough for you. We decide together. And that's why I love the, the idea of the family meetings and your mother going, this wasn't necessary in my day. <laughs> <laughs> and I wouldn't mind, but there was 10 in my mass. My man has 10. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sure they, they shared a bed, five and one and five and the other. So I'm sure they had their meetings. They just looked a little bit different. <laughs> their enough was very different, I'd imagine, which was probably clothes and food. But I, th yeah. I, I think, yeah, I think from the point of view of you'll never be free of them and nor do you ever want to be but the onus of you'll start to be responsible to them rather than responsible for them and that's the difference you know what i mean you're responsible to be there when they need you but you're not responsible for making their decisions if that makes any sense now uh, i just want to finish on one thing i i remember i, I mentioned the, the living with lucy or the lodging with lucy episode i really thought that was hilarious i laughed through the whole thing but your daughter's explanation at the end of that, when she, they came into the house, do you remember at the end that there was a kind of an interview and she described her, the challenges of, of, of Spectrum. I just thought it was absolutely superb. I genuinely have never heard it described as well, as honestly, um, and, and as relatably. So uh, I want to tip my hat to her and thank her for that. I think that was really, really cool. I also want to thank your mom and dad for that, that hour is just fantastic. I mean, just your dad, I, I would love to have met him. Uh, he sounds like an amazing guy and, and being able to play football at a high level and do all that stuff as well. He really was organically ahead of his time and your mother's uh, continuing support there <laughs> and chairing the family meetings every week. I, I, I tip my hat to her as well, but I mostly want to thank you Lynn for your time and your honesty and your insights and and for everything that you're doing and continue to do uh, in the social narrative, I just think it's um, it's hugely valuable and uh, your your voice would be really missing if it wasn't there. Uh, so I really want to thank you for your time today and, and, and for your work that you continue to do and, and for being you. Uh, I think that's probably what I, I want to say. But if anyone has any questions about what Lynn has spoken about or if you have anything you want to get in touch with the show about you can get through to us on askingforaparent at gmail.com or get us through the Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages but for now I just want to say Lynn Ruan Senator Lynn Ruan do I call it can I call you Lynn am I joking I was a bit, a bit late in the day to ask you that but uh, thank you so much for your time don't me ma that sounds chill uh, but uh, look Thank you so much, Lynn, for your time. Uh, and for everyone out there who's listening, take care, stay safe, and bye for now. And that was the wonderful Senator Lynn Ruan. It was a really enjoyable conversation. And I know, I'm really grateful for Lynn. I know she's really busy. And for dedicating some time to have that conversation with me, I'm really grateful for it. But when I think about her story, I think about really her dad and her mom and their belief that they had in her, their support of her, and that important message around moderation. And that, you know, in, in fact, you know, when we fail, it doesn't mean that it's over. It just means that the goalposts move a little bit. And I think as we've had to readjust so many of our goals or expectations over the last 12 months, and we've met with obstacle after obstacle or challenge after challenge, her story's really kind of resonates with me around what we could all learn from that actually um, and that approach of sticking at it, utilizing the supports that are there when they are there and uh, really about, you know, I think the supportive roles parents have that 
even when children lose their way a little bit, that that unwavering and unconditional belief and support and scaffolding of them is really important. And uh, I just want to say thank you to Lynn for her time, her insights and her honesty throughout the episode. It was really uh, a pleasure to have that conversation with her. I really enjoyed it and I hope you did too. And we'll catch up with you again next week for our listeners' questions episode, which if you have any questions, as you know, you can get in touch with askingforaparent at gmail.com or the Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. And also, you know, we're doing that episode in a couple of weeks' time around the kind of lighter and funnier stories around parenting experiences that you've had, and we've had some great ones in so far. But if you have any of them, send them in to the email address askingforaparent at gmail.com and we'll be ensured to include them because... In these darkest of times, it is really important that we remember to smile and have a laugh and try and even laugh at ourselves because, as I say, parenting is aspirational and it would be foolish to think that we're getting it right all the time. And maybe if we get it wrong, it's maybe about learning from that and trying not to repeat the errors of the past. But uh, until next week, take care, stay safe and bye for now.